Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. So, Navin Zahawi, little potted history of what happened there. Um, so basically, he spent ages saying nothing to see here, eh? All above board. What you what you what you all what you're pointing at me for? And then uh, threatened to sue various people who scrutinized uh, his tax affairs. Um, and then Rishi Sunak, who appointed him despite knowing he was under investigation and that it carried a reputational risk uh, to his government, um, uh, then obviously was forced to do uh, an investigation. And then it turned out that actually um, he made a serious breach of the ministerial code and has now been sacked from a government which, let's be honest with you, is disintegrating under the sheer force of multiple different scandals. So it's not looking good for them. Um, I mean, it is one thing after the other, isn't it? Rishi Sunak, you can see with Rishi Sunak, quite interesting. You remember when Theresa May, when it was all going horribly wrong and you could just see the power and the kind of will to continue draining from her face. I'm going to make a little prediction. I think Boris Johnson is going to be Prime Minister by the end of the year. I don't think this is tenable. The polling for the Tories is absolutely catastrophic. Rishi Sunak is giving John Major, I would say, at this point. I think the Tories are going to say, let's throw one more throw of the dice. We've got nothing to lose. We face a terrible route. We might lose into Boris Johnson, but maybe it won't be as bad as Rishi Sunak. Just want to throw that into the throw that into the mix. But we will talk about that and various other things uh, today. If you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link and press uh, like and subscribe. Um, in terms of Super Chats, obviously, you can support the show using Super Chats. I will read out. Oh, yeah, I need to go through the other Super Chats I didn't read out last week, which was very bad for me. So I will read those out at the end as well. But also all the brilliant Super Chats you will send in today. Um, do support us on Patreon.com forward slash omjoes84. We're going to start doing our documentaries again. I've finished my book. I submitted my book draft last week. Woohoo! Um so we're going to do with my brilliant videographer documentaries, which are we will select from your ideas. So we'll do a post on Patreon later, just asking for documentary ideas, and we will get on doing that. Um, I'm just going to bring Michael Walker in now. Actually, Michael Walker, hello. Hey, yeah. Uh, hey, you King. How are you spent in your draft? Congratulations. I know. I'm actually quite excited about it because, um, yeah, I was losing the will to live, Michael. I'll be honest with you. It, the thing is about a book, right? Is like when you write a column. You've got a deadline, but then like you're done. But a book is like this demon that's always on your shoulder. So whatever you're doing, it's tapping, going like, why aren't you doing the book? Why aren't you doing the book? Do you know what I mean? Mm, you're really selling it. I don't write a book. I sorry, I shouldn't say that. I, I really shouldn't. I, I shouldn't say like YouTube, it's even better than an article. Because you can't you can't extend the deadline, you just gotta do it. And if you're not totally happy with it, eh, it's out in the effort forever now. Well, also the problem I mean, this book is I think it's five years overdue. But that is um it's reasonably overdue yeah 
It's a lot changed in that period. I suppose you, in your defence, you have to keep redrafting, don't you? If it's like about politics and. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the problem I made actually, just to give a little—I mean, we're going off topic, but hey, let's talk about my book. Yeah, is that basic? So it's called the alternative and how we build it, right? And I was commissioned to write in 2015, and when I was commissioned to write it, Donald Trump was just some weird reality TV star. Jeremy Corbyn uh, was a relatively unknown Labour backbencher. Uh, Brexit was like a term which had been barely used in political currency because the better known term was Grexit, which is where Brexit came from. People forget that. Um, and so the world was just very different. So what I ended up doing originally as I wrote the book was looking at the rise of various movements like Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, all the rest of it, and then do like ideas for how we could change the world. But in the end, I just changed it now. So it's like looking at things around the world we can learn from and lots of the work of brilliant like academics, experts to try and build how we build a new society. Mm. If you wait too long, the movement you're writing about might have crashed and burned. Well, that's why I... Moral of the story. Strip that section out, yeah. <laughs> uh, the second half, the first wave <laughs> of the new left of the second half of the 2010s. Yeah, it, I think, you know, it, was, it laid the foundations. We'll, we'll do better next time. No, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Um, right, we've got a lot to talk about today, not least, by the way, we're going to talk, I'm very excited to talk about Michael's new project. Um, he has this brilliant new podcast, which we'll talk about in a bit, which everyone needs to support because it's about, I think, one of the defining injustices um, of modern Britain, which is the housing crisis, which I think is it's so much the centre of so many evils because it's living standards, you know, eating up the pay packets of predominantly under 40s renters. Um it's everything from the economy because like the failure to build housing is bad for various industries that depend on it. Huge amounts of housing benefit, taxpayers' money goes on subsidizing rents, which are extortionate. Anyway, just loads of evils, which, which we'll talk about. Also community tensions, because when you get a housing crisis, people think they're competing for scarce resources, things like that. Anyway, it's a very good podcast, but we're going to talk about it in a bit. Let's talk about Nadim Zahawi first, who has been sacked, Michael, in case you haven't heard. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's it, it, it does seem like he could have done it a week ago. Like I, I was saying on Monday, like he's definitely going to be gone by the time PMQs happens on Wednesday because he doesn't want to have a Prime Minister's questions, which is all about Nadeem Zahawi. And then now he's gone already. So it just it just seems like I don't know why he didn't do it straight away. Because he was going on about like, has he broken the ministerial code? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, the fact is he was Chancellor. He's now Tory, or he, until today he was Tory party chair. And he was either so careless with tax that he ended up owing the tax man, you know, three million quid and having to pay a over million quid penalty, or he was maliciously trying to avoid tax. So both of them are very bad options for someone who was chancellor and wants to be the chair of the governing party. Well, so there, wasn't, there wasn't really anything to discover. Yeah, well, I'm baffled by the fact that he waited to be sacked in disgrace in Adam Zahari because he must have known obviously what he'd that, that actually what he done was clearly bad unless he's completely delusional so therefore after an investigation that was going to establish that he'd done something which was i mean i've got the letter here if we look at what rishi sunak uh we can't really read it there can you to be honest with you um basically rishi sunak says it's a serious violation of the ministerial code and therefore you have to be removed from his majesty's government there's something which is quite amusing christopher hope he's a political correspondent at the telegraph 
<laughs> Extraordinarily brutal sacking of Nadim Zahawi. Is this the moment that Rishi Sunak found the political core that he needs to take the Tory party to the next general election? Yeah, I think decisive is really what sums up this particular no. episode. It is also to remember because it's, uh, you know, there's a danger that we end up talking about this as if it's just a Westminster, you know, what's Rishi Sunak's judgment when it comes to sacking ministers, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a story about tax, which also affects Rishi Sunak because, you know, we are in a situation now where people are waiting hours and hours for ambulances. I keep seeing on Twitter, you know, various incidents. I mean, there's many of them every week. Statistically, we know this of people who were dying because an ambulance didn't come on time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is, I think, you know, the issue that will determine the outcome of the next election because people care most about what they can feel, right? They know that that they can't rely on the the essential services that they need. And this story is related because one of the reasons our public services are crumbling and collapsing is because people like Nadim Zahawi and Rishi Sunak's wife aren't particularly fond of paying tax. Well, Andy Burnham actually made an intervention today, which is quite similar to what you you said. So we'll talk Mm. about that as well in a bit. But Dan Needle, so Dan Needle's a tax expert who really basically scalped Nadim Zahawi, to be honest with you. It was his dogged work um, over the last few months, just digging and digging and digging. Um, And he wrote an interesting um, uh, thread, which was, I can't pull it up properly there. He said this was David versus Goliath and David won. Um, Sorry, that was how he's, he's saying that's how it's been framed. He said, no, Zahawi and his advisors made the tactical mistake of accidentally slapping someone with plenty of financial resources, time, litigation experience, and plenty of contacts and friends of the legal tax and media worlds. Um, and he said, this hides the unpleasant truth that the basic slap, that's S-L-A-P-P. These are these legal threats which Nadim Zahawi issued to people like Dan Needle. Strategy remains sound. In Reliath, when Goliath picks on David, Goliath will almost um, almost always win. That's how a libel works, and it's a disgrace. So he could have got away with it because of our libel laws. So because actually he picked on the wrong guy with Dan Needle. Dan Needle had the resources to fight back and the knowledge but this is, again, it's a legal system which benefits rich people who do terrible, terrible things. And then when they're scrutinized, they just shut down and intimidate their critics by threatening to sue them. Mm. I mean, that should have been enough to sack the guy as well, right? If, you, if you're sending legal threats to someone who wants to do public interest journalism about you. And I think the guy got one of these legal bodies to, to determine that, yes, this was what's called a slap. I can't remember off the top of my head what it stands for. But it's, yeah, the, the, these malicious threats where there isn't really a legal case but it's just a letter which is being sent to intimidate someone, essentially. Well, it's not necessarily intimidate, it's to, to scare someone, because obviously yeah. if you do end up getting sued for libel, it can ruin your 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 entire organisation because these things can be incredibly expensive to fight. So it's not just about intimidation. It is a real threat that journalists and campaigners face, because if they do get sued and it is successful, you know that could completely destroy their career, it could destroy their organisation, it could bankrupt them. It's a slap I've just looked up is strategic lawsuits against public participation. Hmm. So it was coined in the 1980s by two University of Denver professors who co-authored slaps getting sued for speaking out. So, yeah, it's the idea of using the legal system to shut down uh, those who are scrutinizing, scrutinizing. And that's one way that the rich can obviously get away with basically murder. Um, Dan Needle. Yeah, I haven't. But he says I have a new definition of hotspur lying to the press, threatening them in libel action and then complaining that their headlines were mean. I love this. So, uh, for those who don't know, Hotspur is a Hebrew term, and the classic example of it is often given as an orphan who murders his, sorry, a child. That's the point. A child who murders his parents and then pleads for leniency on the basis he's an orphan. Hotspur. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of, I mean, 
where the government are currently at. I mean, it does seem, I mean, it is John Major kind of territory, isn't it? It's just, you get to a point where it's just, you've got an exhausted government, which doesn't really have a clear direction and multiple scandals, which are just piling up. And then, you know, that's with, with nothing else to define the government. Well, I mean, he was going for John Major. He was, he wanted to be John Major, but the 1992 version, right? And it's turning into more than 1997 version. I mean, you could, you could say about the Labour Party, one of the reasons is they have, I mean, Keir Starmer is more Tony Blair than Neil Kinnock, right? They've, they've been very sort of clear. We're, we're very right wing and we're not going to raise anyone's taxes. So you could say that it, it, it's partly because the newspapers <laughs> feel now so comfortable getting behind Labour that they are willing to treat Rishi Sunak like they were willing to treat John Major when Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party. And that could, could have something to do with that. But I mean, also, you know, I suppose the Tory party is maybe more, even, even more tied out than it was after 10 years of Margaret Thatcher when John Major first took over. Let's, I do think the John, the John Major thing could be interesting actually in terms of 1992 because what they might try and do is, I mean, it's not the same because, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was in power for 11 years and then removed. Whilst now we've had Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, and then potentially getting rid of him after the May elections. Let's just hear what Michael Gove had to say today on Lord Connors' show. Doesn't it, though, to some of our viewers this morning, reinforce what many of them may think is that you have Conservative politicians time after time trying to follow their own set of rules, not the set of rules that everybody else has to follow? Well, uh, there are always people who will fall short, whether it's in politics or in other parts of, of uh, public life or in... Uh, professional life or in any area. So uh, because someone commits a, a lapse or a sin, that shouldn't be automatically taken as, a, a, as an opportunity to, to damn an entire organisation or a way of working. But and I think the critical thing... But do you fear the perception it gives of your party and indeed of this Prime Minister? Because the, he's not the only minister there have been problems with. You know, there's an investigation into Dominic Raab, very serious minister over bullying claims. Um, Rishi Sunak already had to get rid of Gavin Williamson for sending pretty unpleasant texts to mm. one of his colleagues. This isn't the only problem. And your leader came to power promising the country something different, saying well, to people, oh, I'm going to draw a line over all these things mm. swirling around over sleaze and the kind of disregard for the rules that many people felt the former administration did far too often. Well, again, it's a serious charge and it's one that I take profoundly seriously. So the first thing is Rishi's whole way of operating, the Prime Minister's whole way of operating is driven by a sense of duty um, and uh, a sense of, uh, you know, profound... Uh, uh, moral seriousness. That means that when an allegation is put uh, uh, against someone, he doesn't immediately think, right, OK, I'm in political difficulty. Um, uh, let me deal with this in, a, you know, uh, a, 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 in the fashion that the cynic might imagine was right. I will do right by the individual accused, but I will also do right by the process overall. That's, that's Rishi Sadak's sin. He's just got too much integrity. Michael Gove always reminds me of Francis Uruquart from the original House of Cards. Do you know the way he perf performs? It always seems kind of... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to commit my own sin, which is I'm not going to get the reference because I haven't seen the show. Honestly, Michael. I know. I'm a liability. Why do you keep getting me on? What is... Just, it's just a basic political cultural reference. I'm not asking for a move on the stick here. Yeah, just asking for some basic li cultural literacy. You should tell me, you give me a list of shows I need to watch before I come on next time. I can't take this embarrassment anymore. Do you know what it's like in um, in the thick of it, where for a minister, what they did every week 
is they they produced like a five minute video of various cultural things happening that week, so they were kind of vaguely up to speed. Should do that for you. I do know the, the cost of a loaf of bread. <laughs> How much is it? One fifty. One pound. Well, to be honest, like probably, probably goes up five p a day at the moment. Difficult to keep <laughs> keep tabs on on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's what's cutting through, isn't it? It's the sense as well, which is bad for it. Well, especially particularly the Tories, is, is one rule for them, it's one rule for everybody else. Because what I think people find annoying is obviously they pay tax and they're either on PAYE and obviously they have to pay that. But if you're a sole trader and you're on 25 grand a year, which is about the median income, you can't get an accountant to try and fiddle or f- try and find loopholes. Because what we're talking about here is an evasion, which is going against the sp- letter of the law. It's avoidance where you go against the spirit of the law, which isn't criminal, but it's immoral. Agreed. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is also, I mean, it's it, it's not just the amount that makes it so out of the ordinary because people say, oh, it's, it's it's a bit like if you misdid your self-assessment form, but you happen to be earning £27 million. <laughs> and so, so a little mistake ends up with you owing £4 million or £3 million or however much it was. This was creating an offshore account in Gibraltar saying that a bunch of shares that, you know, were ostensibly his were for his father, you know, it, it's it's not the kind of mistake that most people would make because most people don't have offshore accounts in Gibraltar, right? So yeah. if if you're gifting something to your family member, so I think the, the official story is he was gifting his dad these shares. But if you're, when a normal person gifts their family member some money, they don't do it via an offshore account in Gibraltar. They just ask for their bank details and then they transfer it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? That's what cuts <laughs> through to people because it just, it, it emphasizes in people's heads these people don't actually live on the same planet as you or I, I suppose. Yeah. Let's just hear what Andy Burnham had to say because it does speak to what... That's quite an Americanism, isn't it, when people say that speaks to your point. I just realised. Okay. All right, fine. Well, anyway, let's listen to Andy Burnham. Well, no, I think the mistake that, that he made, I've already pointed to, which is he should have asked Mr Zahawi temporarily to step aside from his role uh, while this uh, investigation was going on so that uh, it wouldn't dominate uh, in the way that it, that it has done. And that was not uh, done. And that's why I say the government does need to, uh, to, to look at the way it's handled this and do things very differently. It's become a bit of a hallmark of this government, hasn't it, where we've had uh, you know, the bullying allegations against ministers just rumbling away all of the time. And the problem with that is it takes sort of much needed uh, oxygen away from the issues that need to be uh, that need to be debated. And this is one of the things that frustrates people about Westminster. It will obsess on something like this, but it will largely ignore the fact that the the timetable on the main railway line in this country that links the main cities of this country collapsed yesterday. Thousands and thousands of people had their weekend plans literally uh, torn up uh, by Avanti West Coast. And yet, where is that? Who, who is debating that? Who is speaking up for those people in the media? Well, I'm trying to. And I, I came on today to try and do that for them. And yet we're talking about this, you know, a kind of a, a Westminster um, concocted uh, mess, basically, which they should have dealt with much, uh, much earlier. And, and that, I think, brings out what's a lot of what's wrong with this country at the moment. And a lot of what is really frustrating people, people are genuinely struggling to get to work, to live their lives, to pay the bills. And they don't see that fully reflected in what's going on in Westminster and what is then debated in the media. I can feel your... 
Yeah, I mean, actually, what, what's interesting there is why this isn't like John Major in the build-up to 997 is whilst then the Tories were convulsed in scandal, partly because he did a back-to-basics morality campaign, which was really stupid because it just meant it was a free-for-all for the media to go through the private lives of various Tory ministers who were doing some pretty dodgy stuff. Um, but actually, the economy was booming and living standards were going up under John Major because of an unsustainable financial boom. So the Tories in... 1997 trying to deflect from their scandal they were like all right you got us on that one <laughs> but they their slogan was um britain is booming don't let labor ruin it but the problem this time is they've got the scandals from Partygate to obviously to to this to to rab but also british society sort of collapsing yeah what do they what do they change the subject to there's nothing like, oh, so with it, you've got these scandals. Let's stop talking about the scandals. Let's start talking about the fact that everyone's on strike and you can't get a train. Oh, no, that doesn't work for us. Let's start talking about NHS. Uh, the NHS, where you have to wait two hours if you've had a stroke or a heart attack for an ambulance to get you and you might die in the interim. And it doesn't, what can they point to? I suppose that's why it's like, let's look to wages the, form of the Gender Recognition Act or something like that, something that's a little bit irrelevant. And they try, but I don't think that's going to work because. I mean, people really care about the fact that the ambulances aren't coming on time. But you're right. They, what they're doing, that they're, they're the only button they've got less to press, which is they're going to they're press more vigorously, given they've got A, scandal, and B, falling wages, collapsing public services, uh, mass strike action. Uh, so they talk about either trans rights or they talk about refugees and migrants. I mean, it's just like press that button, change the subject. Um, but I, I mean, that it's interesting because it hasn't, I mean, particularly if you look at refugees and migrants, I think the reason it doesn't work for them so much is partly actually attitudes, public attitudes to immigration have improved, which is, I don't think, not discussed enough. But also, um, they're almost pointing out their own, on their own terms, bad record, because actually Brexit's happened, immigration's higher than ever, good. <laughs> but that, you know, do you see what I mean? They can't point, they, they're, they're having to draw attention to the fact that on their own terms, that's, they haven't solved what they regard as a problem. Mm. No, Exactly. They've got, no, they've got no story to tell. I mean, I think that's why they are they are desperate for sort of Labour to say we're going to raise ordinary people's taxes or we're going to have free movement again. But, you know, credit to them, although I disagree with them on a bunch of things, they haven't given that sort of opportunity for Rishi Sunak to sort of say, these guys are going to do something you hate. Um, I suppose because they haven't said they'll do anything. <laughs> Well, it's interesting on that because in 992, the Tory attack line against Labour was Labour's tax bombshell. Mm. And, and actually, that really was seared onto the consciousness of John McDonnell, who stood, who was the shadow chancellor, obviously, under Jeremy Corbyn, but who didn't win in Hayes and Harlington in 1992. He actually narrowly lost and went on to win in 1997, which is why in, in, in 2017 and 2019, Labour ran on, we won't raise taxes for the bottom 95%. So it's interesting yeah. because obviously that... You know, I mean, that's a better line. That should be the Keir Starmer line because, the, I mean, the problem with their strategy at the moment is that the only way you can rescue public services is to increase taxes on someone. Mm -hmm. So the, the honest thing to do is to specify who and say we're going to tax the rich a bit more. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the McDonald line was better on, on that one. What do you think about the Tories getting rid of Rishi Sunak after the May elections? I th the theory is I think Dominic Cummings actually raised during the Tory leadership contest was Boris Johnson was secretly backing Liz Truss, not just because he wanted revenge against Rishi Sunak because he's petty, but also um, because he sees him as a backstabber. But he knew that she would detonate and then people would go back to Boris Johnson. But I think he didn't bet on her exploding so quickly. 
because you know maybe a year rather than like five weeks <laughs> um and i think the argument for getting boris johnson back is um you can't remove a prime minister because they're heading for a terrible defeat in the Rishi Sunak. There's no question. But if you remove him and replace with yet another prime minister, um, it, it looks so, I mean, it's beyond ridiculous. So you can say, well, we're going back to the guy who had the mandate in the last election. And Boris Johnson's polling has improved. Uh, their, their hope is people just have forgotten um, and almost think of his period as a halcyon period compared to what came next. What do you think? I've got no idea. I mean, I suppose I can't really see it happening. I mean, there's not that much time to the next election. I don't think Rishi Sunak is like going to show himself to be a disaster. Like, it, it, you know, it, it might be that he's, I don't know, he hasn't done very well, has he? But he, ha but he also has, I mean, if, if, if Boris Johnson comes back, that's just going to be even more, like there's, there's all of these scandals stored up about him, right? So th there's going to be so much saved up about that guy. Like there's so many people who are ready to brief as soon as he has that opportunity, brief against him. And, you know, there are so many scandals within the closet that, but I mean, I, he, he might have a better story to tell about like the economy and stuff because he, he did kind of leave a bit before everything really hit the fan. Right. So he, he can say, you know, we were, we were recovering when I was prime minister. Now I'm back and I'm going to help us recover again. Yeah. I mean, it depends on, I mean, what you partly, I think, speaking about those, the Standards and Privilege Committee investigation into Partygate. Mm. Now, I suppose the, the standards are so low or expectations are so low that if in any way it seems a bit kind of fuzzy or it's not completely condemning of his behaviour, then he could chalk that up as a win. Um, I mean, my theory, I mean, I think they just shouldn't have got rid of Boris Johnson on their own terms because Tory members felt he was too left-wing on the economy. That was their problem with him, which is why Liz Truss went on to win and then destroyed the Tories. Um, because they were seven points behind on average when he resigned, and now they're about 22 points behind on average. So they, they should have stuck with him and probably lost, but in a way they could have recovered from quicker than what happened now. Because I think now voters have decided, after the Liz Truss debacle, they've just made up their minds. They, their view is, you've taken the piss, and mortgage payments are going up because of your crazy experiment. So I just don't... Do you see what I mean? They should have mm. just stuck with him. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you do have to remember like how, like people really hated Boris Johnson when he was in, when he was prime minister by the end, right? And I mean, so he, he would have he would have had a, a, a more people who liked him than Rishi Sunak has, but he probably also had more people that strongly disliked him. And, you know, those scandals weren't going away. And also I think you, you, the, the decline of Tory polling, I don't think is just about the leader at this point in time it's also about the nhs crisis right if boris johnson was in power there would have also been many people dying because ambulances weren't arriving within two hours and i'm not sure his style of politics would have gone down particularly well in that with that being the background context so it's i mean in a way that's an argument for why this could be the best of all possible worlds for him because he can you know leave when we go through the worst winter the nhs has ever had and then like come back in the sunny spring of well it's not going to be it's not going to be any better by this spring is it the the hopeful autumn of 2023 well, I, don't I don't know when he could possibly come back i mean you're right. i mean inflation will fall by i mean i mean when people say inflation will fall we don't mean that prices will then stop reducing it just means the rate of prices going up goes down um but it's likely to fall very substantially because of energy costs coming down energy prices coming down throughout the year 
So I suppose then you can have a relaunch, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, Tad Campwell asks, is there a big enough faction to replace Sinak? I presume the MPs were a bit jaded. Of all the drama, I suppose the problem with the Tories is you can see that from people like Sajid Javid resigning or standing down at the next election, mm. that they're voting, they've given up a lot of them. They're like, we're, we're going to go into opposition, can't be bothered with that. I'll probably go and try and work at a city firm mm. and make some money instead. But I think some of them think, well, hold on a minute, we've got nothing to lose. Yeah. And we're, we're going to lose under Sanak badly. So we might as well do something. Yeah. And you can, yeah, I think there's potentially a bit of a division in the Tory party between the people who do see that they might have like a very financially lucrative career outside of the Conservative Party. I think the Rishi Sunaks and the Jeremy Hunts, basically, who are much more risk averse. So I think they do, they, they would prefer to lose the next election and be seen as respectable, competent figures in the city and in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So, cause then they can go on and just change career and they can blame someone else. You know, they can quite plausibly go into um, corporate rooms and say sort of like, I mean, we tried, but everything was a disaster, wasn't it? Mainly because of that guy who, who came before and that woman who came before. Um, and, but there are probably are a bunch of people who, you know, they know that if they lose at the next general election, there isn't you know, that much for them. You know, they're not, they're not particularly distinguished. Um, they're not considered with much respect and the movers and shakers of movers and shakers of the city etc so you could imagine and yeah the timings actually do work a bit more than i was saying before because it could be spring 2024 that boris johnson retakes over and then they have an election in autumn 2024 right so that you, you could imagine the timings there where there is a, enough people on the back bench you think god we might as well, well take well, a punt with him again also, to be honest, I mean, like, if you look back to the wipeout of the Scottish Parliamentary Labour Party in 2015, a year later, virtually all of those Labour MPs, were uh, former Labour MPs, were unemployed. Mm. Uh, there was a problem, like, you know, if you end up basically on the screens of the nation, you know, like the Michael Portillo moment in 1997 mm. when he was defeated by Stephen Byers and people were like, did you stay up for Michael Portillo? But you end up just becoming these like figures of humiliation, of defeat and all the rest of it. Not very, it doesn't make you very lucrative. Mm. And also if you've got a Labour government, you can't then, it's harder to become like a political lobbyist because you don't have an in with the new administration. That's why a lot of them will become desperate, I think. They'll be like, uh, David Bawata says, um, when, well, while the Tory psychodrama is going on, what's going to happen to the people? Energy bills and food prices aren't going down anytime soon. And the Tories don't want to seem to want to do much. I mean, that is the th that is the problem with the Tories, because the scandal stuff is obviously interesting. Um, but the thing that's really just ruining them is people, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's like what Ronald Reagan said in 1980, do you feel better off than you did four years ago? And, and in the case of Britain, it's predicted that by 2026, the average Britain will be basically have the same income as they did in 2007 on average. It's like a generation of lost living standard growth. That's un, without precedent. And that's the issue, isn't it? It's the fact that the public realm, massive decline. Living, living, the living standards of the average Britain was similar to the German, a German average citizen in 2010. It's now 15% lower. It's just a story of very acute national decline, isn't it? I mean, it's a catastrophe. It's a complete catastrophe. And I mean, in terms of stagnant wages, I think what they were relying on was homeowners, like homeowners and especially homeowners who own their property outright. Um, they are very much insulated from a decade of stagnant wages. But a lot of those people will be quite concerned if they don't think an ambulance will come when they call one. So I think even among what has been their sort of rock solid core constituency, which probably will, you know, on average vote conservative, I can imagine there being more people who are willing to give the other guys a punt because there are public services that everyone relies on whether or not you own your home outright however rich you are i mean even the nhs by the way because private health insurance i mean i think 
my understanding is private health insurance can help you with sort of minor surgery or elective surgery. But if you find yourself having a stroke or a heart attack, there isn't some branch of private ambulances that you can call out. So, so everyone does have an interest in that, which is probably why you're seeing people like Rod Stewart calling into Sky News, you know, a 78-year-old who's incredibly rich, um, saying that he's now going to vote Labour. And he's yeah he's a quite a notorious Tory. Um, previously in 2019, congratulated Boris Johnson on his election win. Uh, Rachel Reese uh, talk says um, uh, your point about trans people is well made. If it's the Tories' go-to deflection place, as a trans person, the UK is a terrifying place to be trans. We will never forgive the Tories for this. Yeah, again, I mean people, uh, millennials. Like I mean, I'm a geriatric millennial. I'm older than Michael. But um, in 1988, the Conservatives introduced Section 28 as what we now would describe as a culture war tactic. That was the banning of the promotion of homosexual um, lifestyles um, in schools and public bodies. So people like myself didn't have any LGBTQ education growing up. Um, but that people forget at the time. I mean, again, that was, at, you know, how much that was used to torture the Labour Party, because actually social attitudes on gay people were significantly worse than they are to, than towards trans people uh, today. I know a lot of people now would think, well, I would be on the right side of that in the 80s. Well, you know, when the headlines were just full constantly of examples of gay sexual predators, which is what happened in the 1980s, incidentally, stories of gay paedophiles and all the rest of it who did exist, who extrapolated uh, to make the point that gay people were a threat to children. Um you know, and you had the AIDS crisis as well. So it was seen as a threat to public health or portrayed as... It's just interesting that, that you know, I don't... As bad as, and terrifying as it is for trans people, I don't think it has the same salience. Patricia Hewitt, when she worked for Neil Kinnock, um, his press secretary in the 80s said, this is serious. The gay issue is losing us votes amongst elderly uh, voters. It's causing us real problems. I don't think the same is happening today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't... I mean, I, I suppose it's because everything else is so incredibly dire. I mean, this is not going to be... You know, it's, uh, sometimes you feel like there's those low-stakes elections where small issues can be decisive. I feel like this is going to be a very high-stakes election when everyone sees the whole, yeah, social fabric crumbling around them and aren't particularly in the mood to have some distraction thrown at them and expected to be to, to ignore all the all the facts in front of their eyes, which is that they're a lot poorer than they used to be. Speaking of which, we're now going to talk about your podcast, which is related to people's living standards, of course, because it's about the housing crisis. 
which defines so much of the lived experience, frankly, of a lot of people, particularly under the age of 40, 45, um, a generation driven into an unregulated rip-off private rented sector where they hand over massive amounts of their often low wages to private landlords to pay off their mortgages and generally to make money. It's called Crash Course with Michael Walker. Let's have a little clip here of Michael Walker debating that. What's his title? Private Landlords Association guy. Private, it was the, the letting, Residential Letting Agents Association. He was a president-elect, and then he's also a lettings director and a state agent, and he's also a landlord of free properties. He, can I just say, for those who are not listening on the podcast, he looks like you expect him to look. Sorry, that's a really personal thing to say, but I'm just saying. Now, personally, when landlords talk about profits and losses, they say, oh, I'm only, you know, it, the rent is only a few hundred pounds more than my mortgage repayments. I'm not I, I'm not rinsing this property for money. I'm not exploiting these tenants because I'm not making a massive profit. Well, you might not be making a massive month to month profit. But at the end of this whole process, you've got someone else to pay for your mortgage. And at the end of the at the end of this whole, you know, rigmarole, um, where someone has been paying 50 percent of their earnings to you every month, you have a very valuable asset. You're sitting on a big asset. So I don't really see why landlords expect to both make a month to month profit and acquire a very valuable asset at the end of it. It seems like they want their cake and and to eat it. You'll say, I want someone else to pay my mortgage and I want them to pay above and beyond that as well. Now, to me, that doesn't seem particularly fair. That's not a, a fair relationship. And that's why I'm you know, very frustrated as a, as a renter because I feel like I, I'm giving so much of my earnings to someone to buy them a flat. So firstly, why is it that you are not a property owner? Why is and I'm, I'm, I'm saying you, I mean, why is this hypothetical tenant not a property owner? Why don't they buy their own property uh, and pay off their own mortgage? So that, that's, that's point one. Point two, I agree that when there are profits, we can have this conversation. But when there is an £850 a month loss that the landlord has to subsidise somebody's rent by, every single month in a market where house values have fallen uh, and the prediction is that they could fall further. Now, why would a landlord stay in this market? Why would they not just sell and maybe return to the market when conditions become more favourable? Yeah, Michael, why doesn't the tenant just buy a house? No, I did. Immediately after that interview, actually, I decided it was silly that I was paying rent to someone to buy their uh, a flat. So I uh, got a mortgage, bought a house. <laughs> And I've been happily paying my mortgage ever since. <laughs> so Just go you. and buy a house. Thank you, buy a house. For that advice. Just, oh, oh, I didn't realise. I could just... Oh, you mm. just buy a house. Yeah, yeah, there, was, there was a spare 200 grand um, in my bank account, which, by the way, is the average deposit now for a house in London. I think, oh, 150 to 200 grand is in, I mean, in that ballpark. It's interesting because obviously what's happened is the gap between the average earning and the average house price has massively gone up, the gap between the two, obviously. Um, but, I mean, even when people talk about like, well, you know, you know, you'll inherit this or that from your parent, it's interesting the average inheritance age for those who are do have any inheritance, which is obviously a small number, rel- well, it's a, it's a relatively privileged section of younger people, but apparently even that is the average age is 55, <laughs> and it's like something like 10 grand. Not a deposit. So it's really interesting because this is so structural and embedded, isn't it? That actually, you know, it's not like all of a sudden there'll be this massive surge in the right in, in home ownership rates as millennials get older. 
Yeah, well, well, unless something significant changes, no. And I, I mean, I think what the what the Conservatives want to do, um, and I think on this count, unfortunately, Labour have sort of lent into it, is they want to restore consent for the system as a whole by allowing a top slice of millennials essentially to join the the property market and get on the housing ladder and enjoy the sort of speculative gains that the housing market has given. Well, it's not a select few because it is, you know, it's it's majority of the population have been getting benefiting from the speculative gains of the housing market, but the forty percent who've been locked out haven't been. And instead of saying, okay, well, this is a crazy system whereby we have property owners who get to get non-property owners to pay their mortgages, instead of saying this is a crazy system, let's move away from it. They're saying let's maintain support for this system by slicing off a top section of millennials and getting them to to benefit from it as well. And they'd quite happily see you know, 30% of the population remain in this kind of debt penury where you're just paying half of your income, as I said to the landlord there, to buy someone else a flat. Like, it, I can't really imagine a more immoral exploitative relationship whereby you just systematically have poor people work for half of their hours for a rich person to buy them property it's, it's very I, I sort of like when I started making the podcast I mean it's, it's become more about policy than sort of like the ethics of it so it's sort of what, what are the solutions what are the systems whereby you, you don't have this because I think railing against landlords is only going to get you so far it's not going to solve the housing crisis but I do think it is an interesting framing that it, it's almost like feudalism you know you work half of your hours for your own consumption and for your own welfare and you work half of your hours for the lord you work half your hours for the right to maintain your little square of that land which is what we're, what we're all desperately clinging on to um one of the i'm gonna put by the way i did i did i'm gonna put something an angry landlord got in touch with me when i shared that video with a, a challenge to you michael which i'm gonna give mm. to you but i mean one of the other issues as well as is the legacy of right to buy because what right to buy did in the 1980s was give a bung to a certain to a to a large to a significant chunk of people um but then what happened is 40% of the property sold off of over the right to buy are now let out by buy to let landlords and they're charging on average twice the social rent. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I live in an ex council flat, so I'm a living example of that. So, uh, you know, it, it, this is the same property that would have been rented out for half the amount and that money would have gone to the, the local authority, you know, so it, it would have gone to maintaining the house instead. Now um, it's, twice that much, which goes to some property owner somewhere. And I mean, it's not going to be, you know, property owners in general are going to be disproportionately wealthy compared to the rest of society. So it's not really going to feed back into our local economy in the same way that it, it would if you increased, well, let's say my income, for example, as an example, completely plucked out of the air. Um, I'd be more likely to spend that money out in the community. If it's going to a landlord, that is just going to sit in a bank account somewhere. And I mean, in, in my house, we're all I don't think any of us are entitled to housing benefit, but in many of these ex-council flats, you've got essentially the government then stumping up the housing benefit. So instead of having a house which is owned by the local authority or the government and the rent is going to them every month, you have the rent doubled and now the state stepping in to pay double the rent to the landlord. So it's it's completely, uh, it's, it's such a stupid way to run an economy, let's say, is to say what we're going to do is we're going to sell off all of our assets and then we're going to, pay people to live in those assets but the money's going to go straight to a private landlord it, it, it's silly well i've got a challenge to you from a very very angry landlord michael i'd like to know where michael thinks the private tenants will live if there were no private landlords to rent homes from and i can assure you that as a property manager of 20 years i've seen my fair share of tenants that earn more than my landlords 
they're not all poor. So I think the second the second point is ridiculous. The second point is ridiculous. I mean, it goes without saying that property owners are going to be richer than non-property owners. I mean, because as Greg said, I mean, if if you can afford to live to buy a house, you probably should. You know, I mean, potentially not right now with interest rates as high as they are, but for the past forty years, it's been an absolute one-way bet. If you can afford a house, get that house, right? (laughs) Um, But the first point is, I mean, I'm not necessarily going to take that person, you know, to, to. like, I don't think they're coming from the same place as me, but it is that is an important challenge because in the current system we live in, and this is what's been quite frustrating about making the podcast, actually, if a bunch of private landlords do sell up, while I'm not going to shed a tear for them, it doesn't actually really work in favour of private renters. And we saw this during the pandemic. So what happened is rents went down for a while because lots of people were leaving the capital. House prices were very high because lots of people were looking to live in more spacious properties. Working from home meant that people were like, oh, I want a garden. Oh, I want to have a, an extra room so I can have an office. So people who had money, people who had capital, lots of them upgraded. So moved into bigger properties. Landlords used that opportunity to sell their properties. Then when everyone came back to the city after lockdown ended, you had more people looking for us or looking among a smaller pool of, of, of private properties to, to rent out. So rents massively went up. You had, I spoke to a woman making the podcast who was asked a thousand pounds just to view a property. She had paid sort of 200 pounds to view properties. And you have, you know, these viewings where you've got 30 people all looking at a house at the same time. So landlords selling up didn't immediately make the lives of private renters better. So he's right. But I do think we've sort of, it, it, it shows how terrible the system is, whereby for private renters to have somewhere to live, we need to incentivize landlords to be making a profit month on month and then gain a half a million pound asset at the end of it. It's not a rational way to organize society. But I suppose the, the important point to take from that is, yeah, bashing landlords isn't actually going to get us out of this crisis. What we need to do is build social housing and build much more houses, essentially, and the speculative model of, of housing where what you've got is developers who want to sit on land or where what everyone wants to do is increase the value of this this speculative asset but i do think even despite that it is important to get through the i think the sort of there's something there's something i call landlord brain what and and i i get this especially you know people who are in a soft lord relationship where they're renting from their friend you know who's maybe inherited a house or whatever and then that person thinks that they have a right to demand that rent from that person. And I, I think you do need to sort of crush this moral argument that, yeah, of course, if, if they own the property, they should have to pay you to live in it. Because it's like, why should that person work? Why, why should you be taking that person's wages just because you were lucky enough to sit on this speculative asset, right? So I, I do want to get through landlord brain, but it's not actually a solution to the housing crisis. What we need to do is build loads more social housing. And people say, I suppose, just to... Um, sort of preemptive response to what I've said. Lots of people say, well, if if the landlord sells up, someone else buys that property and moves in. So that's people who leave the rental market. Well, the reason that doesn't quite work here is because owner-occupiers tend to occupy more space than renters. So I live in a quite a small flat with three people. If yeah. our landlord decided to sell up, it wouldn't be three people that bought it and then left the, the, the rental market. It would be a you know, relatively wealthy couple. So you'd have two people living here free people going out to look for a new place. And then you can see how that pushes up prices. In terms of the politics of it, um, one of the points you made is about Liz Truss, for example, whose government 
their her wacky right wing policies crashed the economy and then forced mortgage payments to go up. Um, and that caused a massive political crisis for the Conservatives because obviously homeowners were a massive part of the Tory coalition. Um, but you don't, I'm mean, sorry, basically the Tory government was basically, of Liz Truss was brought down because she pissed off homeowners. That's essentially what basically in large part happened. Whereas private renters as a political constituency are almost completely ignored. I wonder if that's partly because they're disproportionately in urban areas. Um, they're younger people in urban areas who overwhelmingly vote for the Labour Party and the Labour Party just take them for granted. You'll always vote for Labour, whatever you do. And therefore they're just disregarded. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's it's because it's, the few places where renting isn't a complete nightmare. I mean, it has got a bit more difficult in Germany than it used to be, but historically Germany has been a, a good place to be a renter. You have sort of unlimited contracts, very difficult for your landlord to kick you out. Um, there aren't really rent caps in most of Germany, but there are sort of limits to how much your landlord can increase your rent year on year. So that it, it's predictable. Um, you're, you're not constantly sort of worried about what your landlord is going to email you at the end of your 12-month contract and ask you to do. Is it leave? Is it pay 15% more, et cetera, et cetera. And the other place where it's quite nice to be a renter, much better to be a renter than Germany, actually, is Vienna, where people live in social housing, which is beautiful, cheap, sounds like just a gorgeous city to, to live in. Both of those places, the majority of the population are renters, not Austria as a whole. I'm not sure about Austria as a whole, but Vienna, and it's a devolved system, so they sort of manage their, their housing policy in the city and Germany. And it, I don't think it's a coincidence that when you've got the majority of people who are renters, policy is good for renters, right? And, and so this argument, Labour, for example, have come out by saying what we want to do is increase home ownership to 70%. I think it's probably quite difficult to have 70% home ownership and then also have a policy which is good for renters. Because if you have 70% home ownership, what you're creating is a big majority block of the population who have an interest in asset prices rising and 30% of the population who don't and who are politicians going to listen to they're going to listen to the 70% of people who want asset prices to rise especially as those people who want asset prices to rise also happen to be on the same side as big business because they also want asset prices to rise right so I think it is I, I think probably the left proactively wants to resist this idea that what we want to do is help more people on the property ladder obviously I understand why people want to own a property because being a renter sucks but the political economy argument is that you want a big constituency of people who are renters who will then defend it. I think it's no coincidence that in Vienna, <laughs> you know, in, the, in the 1980s, when we had a government that quite successfully sold off social housing and you know radically decreased the condition of renters, actually, that was possible because there was a majority of homeowners who were happy to go along with it. In Vienna, if you have a politician that stands up and says, let's sell off the social housing, the 60% of the population that live in it are going to be like, no, that's a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. David Barras asks, what are your thoughts on renters' unions and rent strikes? Yeah, very good. I mean, I mean, obviously, there's all, all positive is, is my thoughts on them. I suppose there is a limit to how far they're going to get you because, I mean, the law is very much weighted in favour of landlords at the moment. So the, the sense I get from uh, what sort of renter activism can get you and especially knowledge about the law. So one thing it can get you, which is really important and valuable, is a rent repayment order. So if you've got a landlord who has been breaking the law, um, you can take them to court and demand your rent back for like a year. And, you know, that can be, I mean, that can be life-changing for many people if you get your rent back for a year. So I think on an individual level, that can be very important. Um, they, they can also be sort of important in terms of 
fighting invalid Section 21. So absolutely join a renters' union. I mean, I'm, I'm 100% in favour of it. The, the limit to it is, is that the laws are such that if you really take on your landlord, you probably don't want to mind getting kicked out in about six months because ultimately all you can do is delay. You, you can delay, but ultimately the landlord is going to be able to get you out. And you can delay and also get a re rent repayment order. So fight your landlord. You, you might end up with thousands of pounds to you know, help you find your, your next property. But it's not that we have a situation, I suppose, like you do in Germany or like we do in the 1970s, where you could take on your landlord and keep the house. Our law means that that's kind of not particularly possible here. It's a brilliant podcast, by the way. And um, I'll just give you some titles of the episodes to give people a little flavour. Uh, why is my rent so high? Good question. The Rise and Fall of Council Housing, which was a brilliant interview with John Bolton, who's the author of a very good book, actually, which I have, Municipal Dreams, The Rise and Fall of Council Housing. Why renting in London is hell right now. How property investors screwed us all with Anna Minton, who wrote a very good book called Big Capital. Are old landlords bastards? And uh, obviously, we've had that big debate with... Um, that that landlord who was definitely not in any way fitting a particular stereotype. Of and I am gonna I am gonna go to solutions as well. I keep saying at the end of every episode, if that was depressing, don't worry because I'm gonna also come up with some solutions. But we're on episode five and I still haven't gotten to the solutions. But I think that's gonna be <laughs> episode seven and eight. I'm gonna make sure um, I have some alternatives so it's not just a depressing listen. So is this just gonna go? How long is this podcast gonna go on? And is it you're gonna do like other subjects? Yeah. So the idea is um, so if you know, if, if anyone in the audience doesn't know, my main job is I host the news show for Navarra Media. So that's always, we take a topic for 15 minutes and then we move on, you know, very much in the news cycle. This, I wanted to be the opposite. So it's take a big topic that I'm interested in and I think other people will be. Then we do a whole series on them. So the first series is all about rent because um, I got a rent increase this month and I was really annoyed about it. Not this month, sorry, this summer. And I was really annoyed about it and I've always been very annoyed about paying my landlords half my wages. Um, the next season is probably going to be, did COVID change the world? So the the idea is, haven't started making it yet, but I want to release it on the anniversary of the lockdown. And the, I don't know if you had a, a similar experience. Though, and I really remember when lockdown first happened, there being this moment where I was, I remember walking to the supermarket sort of like half 10, because I wanted to go when it was, when it was quieter in, in the evening and thinking like, this changes everything. You know, this is like our World War II. Nothing is ever going to be the same again. And I was also being quite optimistic about it. I was like, we're realizing that essential workers really matter. You know, the sort of discourse, like, of course, people stacking shelves and people collecting our bins, they are the people that, you know, make society work. I was also thinking like, oh God, everyone is going to listen to scientists now, right? You know, if it, it, we should have taken those warnings from scientists that a pandemic was going to happen. Surely we're all going to apply that to climate change. And then three years later, it's like, it kind of feels like nothing's changed. I mean, if anything, things have got a little bit worse. So I, I, I'm not saying that's going to be the conclusion, but that's the the, the motivating question, the sort of the, the gap between my expectations and reality. I do think it's interesting, though, with these things that, for example, the financial crash at the time, everyone was like, well, something's got to, like, come on, the banks have just crashed the economy, and then we ended up with, obviously, austerity and all the rest of it. But actually, when you get something like that, which is like a bomb, like a big nuclear bomb going off, basically, it does actually take a while for the political consequences to be really felt in, lo in lots of ways, because actually you got the crash in 2008. And then in the second half of the 2010s, that's when you got the rise of particularly left movements. So you think Bernie Sanders or Jamie Corbyn, um, or also right wing populist movements like Donald Trump, you know, Farageism, that kind of thing. And I just wonder, because if you think about it, the 
COVID crisis, one of the knock-on effects is the current social crisis we're having because of the supply. It's obviously, you know, I know there's the war in Ukraine and so on, but you get, you know, we got this um, supply chain issues and all the rest of it. So it's just interesting because I think it takes a while often for these mm. things to, be, to to kind of filter through politically. And it's only, well, it's three years nearly, which is kind of crazy actually since lockdown began. It's three, year, three years ago, we were like, what's going on in Wuhan? That's what happened. That was that was three years ago, mm. um, and then I think it started in Italy. Yeah, and and because it, it was the end of, I think the end of February when people talking about Italy and going well in northern Italy, people are older, they kiss more when they that greet was each a big other. One. They kiss when they say hi. That's why it's hit Italy. Yeah. We're going to be fine because we're not the most tactile people. That was it. And yeah. then they were like, they live at home a lot with their with their parents and their grandparents, so they yeah. like they mix more with like older generations. I'd be polite. It's not going to be like it. Italy's an outlier. It's an exception. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, it's it is weird as well because I think as well though, like with COVID, it was quite a big trauma, and I think people. I was wondering when it was happening. When it finishes, are people going to want to talk about it very much? And I think for a while, I think. What do you think? Do we talk about it that much? I think people are a bit like. It was well, definitely. Yeah, I, def I definitely want to do like an episode on the. I suppose the bound up trauma yeah. that lots of people have. And I mean, I think everyone's experience was so different as well. I think if, you know, I think your experience of COVID will be really transformed depending on, you know, what, what your job was. Did you lose someone? So for me, sort of my, even in lockdown, obviously lockdown was difficult in the same way that was difficult for everyone, but my job did keep me, you know, sometimes people say, say to me like Tisky Sour on Navarro kept them saying, like, kept me saying too. <laughs> like, so... I, but I think lots of people have a lot of bonded up trauma that they don't necessarily want to like talk about or recognize. So I think like the mental health consequences of it is interesting. I, I, also think, I mean, I don't want to be like, it might sound a bit trivial given we had, you know, what, I mean, like up to 200,000 people dead from COVID in this country alone, depending on how you, um, you, you qualify that, I suppose. But we were told 20,000 deaths, the chief scientific officer would be a good result. I mean, he didn't mean that. He was like, it'd still be terrible, but you know, um, but, you know, and obviously the social crisis and all the rest of it. But your your colleague at Navarra, Moya Nathan McLean, wrote a piece about breakups and suggesting that actually partly because of the stresses on people's lives and all the rest of it. And you got a lot of breakups in 2022. And that was partly the unwinding of the pandemic. I think it's quite interesting. No, I think that's interesting. I think there's a lot to that. I think in, in terms of it taking time for its consequences to, sorry, we've gone really off topic now. I'm oh, sorry, yeah, that was but, uh, When it comes to the financial crisis, I agree. And I agree it could be like a decade thing, but I suppose it's just the 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 analogy I had in my head at the time and which I think still does shape a lot of our like political consciousness is the second world war so you have the second world war it ends labor get elected and we get the welfare state in the NHS within three years right so so there is that sort of expectation where it's all everything changes and then it's all go wow moment and I, I mean we always sort of measure history from the post from post world from post second world war don't we, mm -hmm. when we talk about the welfare state in Britain so post-war Britain but it, it, I'm not sure if we will have post-covid Britain no, I don't think the best case scenario was Keir Starmer being Clement Attlee because what you had in the 1930s was an unlikely, you know, kind of pacifist leader on the left, George Lansbury. Um, and then he was removed and replaced by this lawyer who was not very charismatic um, and showy, um, but actually did came to power and, and did all these transformative policies. And that was the best case scenario, Keir Starmer and narrator. He ain't no Clement Attlee, this one. No, he's not. He's not. He's not going to...
No, Can I say one more thing, Owen, quickly? Yeah, because we need to finish. Just, yeah, just a shout out to my producers, Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herbman, who are working behind the scenes um, to make the podcast happen. Um, so I just wanted to and, give, oh, give a shout out to their efforts. And that's another reason to go to the Patreon. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, this is very. I, I do keep flashing up the link. Uh, <laughs> no, you've, you've been very good to me, Owen. I've got no my, complaints. I'm doing my best. Um, yeah, it, obviously, these, these are all created because of a lot of hard graft, labor, and resources. Um, and if you want to support left media projects, which do things like put a spotlight on the housing crisis, which a lot of the media don't do because the media is run by people who don't suffer from the consequences of the housing crisis. And a lot of senior journalists don't suffer from the consequences of the housing crisis. Um, so uh, but do go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod um, and do support Michael and his team as they do these brilliant podcasts. So do support as best you can. Thanks, Michael. Sorry, that was quite long. I forgot we were, yeah, so I said, I think I said to Michael like 40 minutes and it's like an hour, but you know, whatever. I, I, it was a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It's great to have you on, Michael. Um, I will, um, yeah, I'll see you in a bit, but thank you for joining us. Do As I say, do support uh, Michael and his team. And I, uh, yeah, thanks, man. Lots of love. Thank you. Lots of love. See you in a bit. Um, great stuff. That was fun. Enjoyed that. It was obviously love having my companion on to chat about stuff um yeah just i remember oh but i let me just remember the super chats before i forget because last week i forgot so last week for example uh thanks to tad campwell tom thon phrase doe Ma- rachel Rees, mark pm us david barretta and this week david again again and a stalwart all mod cons tad campwell rachel Rees, and naoki ms2 uh yeah david barretta asked about the book so yeah i just want to quick because i'll probably end up doing a video about the book at some point oh i'll oh if you think i won't be going on about my book incessantly I think it hopefully the plan is that it will come out in a year. Um, I've submitted the draft. I would say the issue is it's got like 17 chapters. Turns out if you want to write a book about like everything, um, it's quite a challenge as it turns out. So it's called The Alternative and How We Build It. How We Build It. Um, And the whole point of uh, the book is... A lot of, obviously, you know, like my books previously, if you look at like the establishment uh, and how they get away with it, and Charles' demonization of the working class, obviously they're analytical about the failures of the terrible injustices of neoliberalism and how it functions. And I think what's changed in the last few years is the left have become more propositional, i.e. what we're not just analysing a broken society and economy, but we're actually offering viable, workable alternatives. And we've got this new generation of thinkers who've really come to the fore um, in the last few years, because before the left was very much like stop the cuts, stop privatization, stop the war, rather than because of the defeats the left had suffered in the 80s onwards and the kind of onward march of this particular form of globalized neoliberalism. And one of the things I'm interested in the book is this concept of like what I call the war in our imaginations. And this taps into something like Mark, Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher, who's a brilliant writer who wrote Capitalist Realism. Um, and it kind of that tapped into the idea of it might have been Slavoj Zizek, he said this in the 1990s, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. That's how absolute capitalist triumphalism was in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War in particular, and then the fall of the old forms of social democracy, and the end of the pretense of left of centre parties that they wanted to go beyond capitalism and create something entirely new, but actually they were just there to tinker around the edges of capitalism and humanise it in various ways. So... What I'm interested in is, is that, you know, a precondition um, to creating a new society is to, is to fight back against the war on our imaginations. And that we should start 
not just from what we think the point of what is politically possible, but what actually would be necessary in a rational way of organizing um, our societies. Now, I don't, not naive enough to think that this is a battle of ideas. And um, my understanding as a materialist is that progress happens because of social forces, that you need to build mass movements that can overcome the huge power that capital has at its disposal, which is massive economically and politically. So you need mass movements, but you obviously need those mass movements to be armed with ideas about how you organize society. And, you know, uh, you know, you can't just reduce everything to just social forces. You have to have, you know, a clear, concrete set of ideas about how, how the world should be run. So basically what the book does is it's got lots of chapters and everything from how you democratize the workplace to um, how you obviously the climate emergency to the housing crisis. The chapter on the housing crisis actually looks at um, partly in Germany, they in Berlin, they had a referendum um, campaign to expropriate corporate private landlords, which they won, hasn't been enacted, but it's still quite interesting, that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and everything to ending the war on drugs, uh, to the justice system, to uh, LGBTQ liberation to uh, um, tax to I mean it literally is to it's quite unwieldy that isn't it it's it's a lot of it's a lot of chapters as I've said um, if I'm just looking at some of the chapters now which I just I mean it is you know the four day week very interesting the four day week um, things like uh, media reform like changing you know which as you know I'm interested in because of this channel and podcast um, how you create a new independent media ecosystem anyway it's a labor of love it has killed me and it's absorbed so much time and effort and energy that it's been a bit of a struggle which is why for a while for example this channel suffered just because i had to concentrate on that anyway it's called the alternative and how we build it it is published by penguin by my brilliant editor Tom Penn, who I have, um, someone said, what book is he talking about? So it's my book called The Alternative. We build it. <laughs> Pay attention at the back. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's the same editor, brilliant editor who I did my last three books with. But this is the most important book I've written just because it's, and it's very international in scope. It's just, you know, I've tried, I've interviewed hundreds of people, like hundreds and it's, you know, all these amazing experts around the world looking at the elements in countries that do work already, like decriminalization of drugs in Portugal to ideas that haven't been enacted, but which lots of serious thinkers have put time and effort in. And I'm just trying to make those ideas accessible and popularize them. Anyway, hopefully out in a year. Um, and that is good. And then I'll, then I'll have to work on some other book. Um, they are a nightmare to write. I mean, I'm glad. I think some people really enjoy writing. I like like researching and interviewing people, but the actual process, oh my word, it is exhausting. It's just because it's always on your brain. It's always on your mind and you just think, oh, I should be in my book. Why, you know, why am I having fun when I could be writing my book? Anyway. Um, yeah, great, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks for Michael, as ever. Please do like and subscribe. It only takes you like a second so if you're watching either on YouTube, press like, or Facebook, press like. Uh, do subscribe. And you can also, if you go to the subscribe on the YouTube, if you can click on the notification bell, and then you can get all the videos pinging up on your phone when we do them. We've got loads of videos next week, including, of course, because there is the big strike on the 1st of February. So we've got this big coordinated set of strikes across the country. And I'll be interviewing, actually, the General Secretary of the uh, Independent Workers of Great Britain Union, who organised particularly precarious workers and i'll be talking to them things like the crackdown on um unions legally and how we fight that and just generally workers fighting back so do check that out and we've got lots of videos to come during the week um 
Great. Thanks, everyone. Uh, lots of stuff to come, including the documentaries. Yeah, do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84, and we will be having... I don't know what the next documentary will be, but um, I will talk that over with our videographer based on the ideas you submit on Patreon. I'll do a post later uh, asking for your ideas. I mean, that's what we've done previously. Do check out our documentaries, like our Tory party conference video, which is always a favourite. Right. That is enough for me. Um, I will speak to you directly next Sunday, but I will speak to you during the week, every day, pretty much. All right. Lots of love. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, hold on. What am I doing? Oh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Ready? Yes. Let's go. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.